Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is John Glazer. I'm the Associate Director of Foreign Policy Studies here. Um, and I want to welcome you to the Hayek Auditorium for uh, today's discussion. I think uh, the Cato Institute has long been unique in Washington, D.C.'s foreign policy debate. Um, our scholars uh, for years have argued that there's um, essentially no debate over grand strategy here in the nation's capital. Uh, that's never been the case in academia, as we'll see here today, though. Um, but the vigorous kind of debates that happen here in D.C. Um, tend to happen within a very narrow range of opinion, um, usually centering on tactics as opposed to competing strategic visions. Um, and these kind of surface-level disagreements mask a bipartisan consensus on grand strategy. Um, that we're going to explore today. Um, this consensus sees the United States as the indispensable nation, the policeman of the world, that must maintain military preponderance and extensive security commitments in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia in the name of upholding international order. Uh, somewhat lately, because of certain political developments, there's been a bit more chatter about grand strategy here. Um, the question, I think, is what should America's role in the world be in the 21st century? For more than 70 years, we've held uh, the role of um, being deeply, deeply engaged in the international system. We've led established international organizations and institutions. We've taken it upon ourselves to go above and beyond the ordinary tasks of a state to secure the national defense and pursue our own um, national interests uh, to an expanded role that includes ensuring the peace and stability of the entire world. Our network of alliances and security guarantees, which obligate the United States to go to war in defense of some 60 nations abroad, are meant to reassure friends and allies, thus discouraging them from uh, too much investment in their own defense capabilities, and simultaneously deter adversaries thereby avoiding the kind of conflict spirals common in eras prior to American military predominance. But in a changing geopolitical environment, is this still the right strategy to pursue? If we give up our role as global policemen, will this cause violent or destabilizing disruptions? Or is the international system safer these days for reasons other than US primacy? Um, does primacy cause the United States to pursue policies contrary to its interests that sometimes backfire at great cost in blood and treasure? Is there maybe a middle role between primacy and restraint? Today's discussion will explore all of these issues. Um, our distinguished guests to my left have written what is easily the most compelling and persuasive case for maintaining our current grand strategy of primacy, or deep engagement, as they prefer to call it. It is America abroad the United States' role in the 21st century. Stephen G. Brooks is Associate Professor of Government at Dartmouth College. He was previously, among other things, a fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University. He's the author of numerous journal articles and books, uh, including the forthcoming from Princeton University Press, Political Economy and International Security. His colleague and co-author, William C. Woolforth, is the Daniel Webster Professor of Government at Dartmouth College. 
He taught previously at Princeton and Georgetown. He's the author and editor of eight books and some 60 articles and chapters on issues of international relations. They are leading voices in the academy on questions of grand strategy. To my right are two people on the other end of the grand strategy spectrum, so to speak. Benjamin H. Friedman. Friedman is a research fellow in defense and homeland security studies here at Cato and an adjunct lecturer at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Uh, Eugene Goltz is associate professor of, uh, at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also an adjunct scholar here at Cato. Uh, this will be a really interesting um, discussion, not only because this is a very good book that I recommend to you all, but because when these guys write about grand strategy, they cite these guys for what to argue against. And when these guys write about grand strategy, they cite these guys for what to argue against. So I think we're dealing with um, a very high caliber of, uh, of discussion about these things, and I'm excited. I think, um, William, you're first, correct? I believe so. Can I stand up there? You may, yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. It's exciting that uh, grand strategy is being debated in Washington, certainly within the halls of the Cato Institute. Um, I normally just would only uh, want to take an introduction like that and record it and send it home to my mother so she can see that I'm really, I've made it. But I do want to make two slight sort of, uh, two slight sort of uh, emendations uh, if it won't be seen as uh, impolite. Uh, one is that my dear colleague Steve Brooks is actually really no longer an associate professor. He's been promoted to full professor. Long overdue. Long overdue. Uh, well and richly deserved. So now you really have to listen to what he says. Um, and the other is that uh, uh, our book argues for uh, American grand strategy that we call deep engagement. And the way we lay it out in that book, it has to do with a core of commitments the United States has. It's been referred to. But there are other things the United States does in the world that are not, in our view, necessary to sustain that grand strategy. That distinction between what is necessary for the grand strategy and what is optional turns out to be crucial. Um, let me just say a few words about the origins of the book and what the book does. And I won't get too much into the weeds here, but I can't resist being on this panel with, these, with this specific group of people mentioning a little bit about the origins of the book. Steve and I have been partners in crime as co-authors for some, it's pushing 20 years now, I'm afraid to say. And uh, I'd say for at least 15 of that 20 years, we have been reading and debating and learning from a group of highly intelligent, very smart scholars of international relations who believe the United States should pull back, retrench, cut a much smaller figure on the international scene than it has generally done since 1950. And um, for at least 10 years, we read and debated those scholars, and we basically were so shell-shocked from the experience we never had the temerity to actually say anything much in response. Uh, we did write a book back in 2008, which was mainly about the sort of power position of the United States, but we didn't get into the grand strategy debate. It was only after a long while that we finally decided that, you know, what would we actually do if we were responsible for the affairs of this country and the world? Would we actually sustain most of these or many of these or the bulk of these commitments? Um, and we ultimately decided that Having thought about it, we probably would. And we, we set about to try to understand uh, uh, why, uh, why that decision might, why that view might make sense. But it was only after deep engagement with the arguments of our intellectual opponents. So um, 
what is, uh, and, and, and by way of introduction too, let me just, uh, to the book, let me just say that uh, the book uh, has, uh, is based on a lot of assumptions. Maybe people in the room won't accept every assumption, but many of these assumptions we use to guide the analysis are the ones that we take from those who favor a more restrained U.S. role. We, for example, definitely believe that the starting point of thinking about grant strategy should be the interests of the United States of America. And that the rubric for assessing whether this grant strategy makes sense are the cost and balance ledger in terms of U.S. national interests. And we regard those interests as being the security of the American people. We regard those interests as being the prosperity of those American people. And we regard those interests as being the freedom and intellectual and institutions, democratic institutions of those people. And that's what this grand strategy needs to serve. So we completely accept those basic standpoints for our analysis. We also agree that we need to focus on the big and important threats and challenges to those interests rather than passing or trivial ones. So we're kind of in the same, one of the reasons the debate is so fruitful among this group is we're kind of in the same intellectual space as to how we think about the fundamental questions. Okay, so what is the book about? It has two parts, uh, really, and those two parts are about what Steve and I think, at least, are two of the most important questions, if not the most important questions, facing the United States in the 21st century. And the first question is, does the United States have the capacity, the material capacity, to continue to sustain a strategy of deep engagement with the world? Or has the United States already declined or is it soon going to decline in terms of its power position to the point where we will no longer have this capacity? Now our answer to that question is that the United States will sustain that capacity and will sustain it for very many, many years to come. The second question is, given that our answer to the first question is that the United States can pursue this grand strategy, the question then becomes, should the United States pursue a grand strategy of deep engagement? Our answer to that question is yes. So what I wanna do is just take a few minutes uh, to talk about the first part of the book and reserve the bulk of the time for Steve to talk about the second part of the book, which is after all about the grand strategy question, the question you all came here to debate. The first question about, about uh, we address in the book is simply asking, whether the world is on the cusp of change such that the United States will no longer have this capacity to act as a superpower. We believe there's two really huge ways in which the world could be fundamentally different uh, going forward. Uh, one would be if another country rose to the point that it too could perform the role of a superpower. Namely, it could sustain on a, uh, on a sustained basis, it could maintain uh, complex alliance systems in multiple regions and render those alliances credible at the same time. Um, and uh, another way would be if another power rose to the point where it prevented the United States from being able to perform that superpower role. So those are the two key metrics. If you read a lot of the commentary about China's rise and America's so-called, uh, America's decline, um, uh, you'll see that in the language that is used in these writings often seem to suggest that the world is indeed on the cusp of a change of that magnitude. This is certainly the view of many world leaders, including Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, and others. Um, and our view after carefully diving into this is this, this view exaggerates the degree to which the Ameri America's power position is changing. 
Now, that first part of the book, if you're interested, takes a deep dive into the numbers, tries to figure out the best way to think about power in international politics, tries to assess the best way to measure power in international politics. And I will not bore you with details and simply come uh, to our essential finding after uh, many, many years of work. And that is that the world has changed in ways to render the rise of new challengers to an existing great power like the United States much more difficult than in the past. The complexity, the scale of investments necessary to create the military systems, platforms, infrastructure, software that sustains the United States position are things that are only the result of decades of investment. It's very, very hard to catch up. Much harder than it would have been in past episodes of rise and decline of power, such as the middle of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century. The canonical cases of rise and decline of powers took place in a world in which throwing more economic resources at the problem would generate, generally, rapid results. That is to say, once a power in those earlier settings had made a strategic decision to ramp up its capabilities, the gap between that, the taking of that decision and the realization of its results was relatively short. Today, that is not the case. It takes decades. The second key thing about this current episode of rise and decline, the degree to which the United States position is secure, is the nature of the challenger itself. For the one country that really has, at least in the broad sense, the capacity ultimately to make one of these two potential big changes of either itself becoming a superpower or rendering the US incapable of being one is China. And that country is far behind the United States technology, uh, technologically. Indeed, the gap between the rising and defending power of the current global order is larger in this uh, technological realm than in all of the canonical, canonical cases we refer to, such as the rise of Germany, the rise of the United States itself in the 19th and early 20th centuries, and the rise of the Soviet Union in the middle of the 20th century. And so given that relatively large technological gap, and the intrinsic difficulty of the task of becoming a superpower. We believe, and we believe our chapters in this uh, section of the book show, that it's going to be many decades before the United States would be in some sense compelled by its circumstances to cease pursuing this grand strategy of deep engagements, which leads, of course, to the key question being, should the United States continue to pursue it just because it can? And to answer that question, I invite my colleague Steve Brooks up to the stage. Um, thanks a lot. It's a real pleasure to be here. I just want to start by um, echoing something that Bill said um, in terms of how we came to doing this book. And what I note is that academia is a strange environment in some respects in that the highest form of respect that you can accord to someone is to critique their ideas. It took us five years to write a book responding to the arguments that people like here on this panel are making. And in particular, the people that Bill and I spoke to the most, not just during those five years, but in the 10 years before that, were to Eugene, who's here, and to his co-author, Press. So the point is, we wouldn't have written this book if they hadn't advanced those arguments. It's really the 1997 article that Eugene wrote with Daryl and Harvey Sapolsky called Come Home America, which is still, in my view, the best article on this topic and was the one that started this whole debate. 
So what I'm going to be talking about today in this part of the talk is answering two questions. One is, what is the deep engagement grand strategy? So we can only talk about whether we should continue to pursue it if we know what it is. And then I'll then move to discuss why it is that we think we should stay engaged in the world. So first, what is the deep engagement grand strategy? And then what are alternatives to it? Many people who critique the deep engagement grand strategy misinterpret it because they do not focus on its constant defining elements. So what are those constant defining elements? Let me first by talk about what they are not. Is active democracy promotion a defining element? We would say no. Is assertive human rights promotion a defining element? We would say no. Is transforming other societies to look like us a defining element? We would say no. And is the regular use of military power a defining element? We would say no. Rather than being constant defining elements of the grand strategy, all those things I just mentioned are things which have varied from administration to administration and sometimes have varied within a given administration. So what are the constant defining elements of deep engagement? What ultimately lies at the core of deep engagement are three objectives. First, managing the external environment to reduce near and long-term threats to US security. Second, promoting a liberal economic order to expand the global economy and maximize US prosperity. And third, creating, sustaining, and revising the global institutional order to secure necessary interstate cooperation to advance American interests. At least until January 20th of this year, those three objectives have been constant elements of US grand strategy for 70 years. And the pursuit of those objectives underlies what is arguably the United States' most consequential strategic choice, which is to maintain security partnerships to allies in three core regions, Europe, East Asia, and the Middle East. And the current scholarly debate that we're talking about is so consequential because it is about those fundamental things. OK, so that's what deep engagement is. What are alternatives to it? Well, the alternatives are to do more or to do less. To do more is to pursue what we would call a deep engagement plus approach. Take the core three things I just said and add stuff to it. Add active democracy promotion. Add trying to transform the world to look like us. Maybe focus more on stability everywhere instead of stability in the core regions where you need it. Lots of folks in DC favor a deep engagement plus approach, neocons on the right, liberal interventionists on the left. So that's one alternative, do more. The second alternative is to do less. And within the academy, there are three basic approaches to doing less. One is get rid of all of our alliances. The second is get rid of none of them, but just withdraw troops from some countries we're allied to. And the third would be scrap some alliances, but keep others. So that's the debate. Why do we think that 
the U.S. should continue to pursue a deep engagement strategy? And in particular, why do we think we shouldn't do deep engagement plus, nor, of course, should we pull back? Well, I'm going to summarize our argument in like six chapters with four points. The first is, yes, there are costs and risks associated with deep engagement, but they are manageable. The scholarly proponents of retrenchment advance a powerful set of arguments for why deep engagement is costly and risky. And they point to five things in particular. Free riding, if we defend our allies, they spend less. Entrapment, our allies might pull us into a war that's not in our interest. Budgetary costs, we're spending all this money on defense that we could be using here at home. Balancing, we make other countries mad or madder than they would otherwise be, and they do things to check us. And finally, temptation which is the kind of, if you have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail kind of problem. This constant temptation to do something given all this material power that we have. So in the book, we run through and address all these counter arguments in detail. We think they're serious. They all have merit except for the balancing one. And by far the strongest of them is the temptation. As for the free riding, the entrapment, and the budgetary cost counterarguments, they obtain, but weakly in our view. Regarding free riding, yeah, sure, our allies free ride. But it's less than you think if you consider all the things that our allies do, instead of boiling down the metric for judging allies to one thing, which is how much they spend on defense. When's the last time Germany voted against us in the IMF? That matters. Moreover, we, I think, and interestingly, I made this point last time I was at Cato a few years ago, we're just not as concerned, Bill and I, with fairness, as I think Eugene and Daryl and everyone else writing for retrenchment are. I think fairness is important. Sure, I'd like our allies to spend more on defense. But if the alternative to free riding is the emergence of a world that's more dangerous and less prosperous, then I can live with free riding. Regarding the budget, I think you have to ask yourself two questions. First. How much would we truly save if we were trenched? And second, how certain can we be that any budgetary savings would actually go towards productivity-enhancing investments like education and not to wasteful spending or poorly designed tax cuts that don't incentivize productivity? We find it strange that those making the argument regarding defense spending and retrenchment over and over and over again say that the US can't make good rational decisions. But they assume that if we cut defense, that some sort of philosopher king is going to take over Washington, D.C. and allocate that money in an entirely reasonable, rational way. Finally, regarding entrapment, it exists as a risk. It's real. But as Michael Beckley shows, this is a risk the U.S. has so far essentially avoided. Of course, just like with mutual funds, you know, past performance is not necessarily a predictor of future performance. But our book documents many reasons why Washington, in our view, can continue to avoid entrapment. And sure, yes, there does remain that risk. But you must also balance that risk 
against the risk that a conflict might emerge in a region in which we used to have a forward presence. And when that conflict emerges, we can't just say, oh, it's too bad that's burning over there. I'm not going to do anything and not get pulled back in, which, of course, is going to be more costly than being there in the first place to prevent the conflict from being at the, at the start. So there are costs and risks of deep engagement, but they are manageable. That's our first point. Second point, which you can say more quickly, is that deep engagement is beneficial because it fosters a more favorable security environment for the United States. Deep engagement helps to reassure allies. Deep engagement simultaneously gives us leverage over our allies. Deep engagement allows us to deter adversaries. In a single sentence, our overall punchline is that security provided from the outside by the US is more likely to produce stability in these three core regions than if security was provided by local actors. Third overall point is that academic proponents of retrenchment in general miss many of the benefits of deep engagement. The analysis of grand strategy cannot be limited just to security affairs. But that's exactly what almost all proponents who advocate retrenchment do. The notable exceptions are Eugene and his co-author, Dale Press, who do advance the economic arguments for deep engagement. But no other scholars do in this camp. And on the institutional side of things, that argument is unaddressed. What are the institutional benefits the United States gets? How much extra cooperation does the US get on many things because it does play this globally engaged security role? That argument is not addressed. Well, if you're not addressing that, and or only some people are addressing the economic argument, a lot of what the grand strategy is doing is not factored in. Final point, which for why we think pulling back would be a mistake, is that pulling back from the world be a very risky grand experiment that is simply not worth running. We see the same world that these guys see. The world's messy. It's frustrating. Our allies often are not doing as much as we would like. The institutional order is not perfect. It has gaps. It has flaws. Taking on a leadership role can create friction. And of course, the US does retain a very large capacity to act on its own. But we think if you add all that up, it still doesn't mean that we should pull back from the world. That would be a huge risk. Now, what do we mean by these huge risks? Well, we try to answer that in the book by carefully considering the counterfactual of what the world would look like if the US pulled back. And I'll encourage you to do this as well by asking yourself a question. The question would be, how would the world need to work for us to conclude that pulling back was a good idea? What kind of assumptions would you have to make? What kind of theoretical bets would have to come through? What kind of things would you be hoping for? What kind of decisions by others would you need to be hoping would happen? As you ponder this question, let me run through 10 different dimensions. And what you need to do is ask yourself, how likely would the world, would the world really work this way if America pulled back? First, on nuclear weapons. It might be that if the US pulls back from the world, that the spread of nuclear weapons will occur in a responsible way. 
with all nuclear states building up the kind of survival nuclear forces that have little risk of accidents and miscalculation. Second, if the US pulls back, it might be that needed friendships will emerge organically whenever Washington and its potential partners share interests. And so there's no need to maintain complicated institutional arrangements to foster those kind of ties. Third, if the US pulls back, it might be that if a war develops in Asia or another place in the world where we have our core interests represented now, it might be that if war develops in one of those places that economic globalization will be unaffected and that, or that globalization will be thrown off track and US firms and investors can avoid being harmed by any turbulence in the markets. It might be the case that that would be the way it works. Fourth, and relatedly, it might be that we do not need a forward presence and other such expensive alliance arrangements to keep the global economy structured as it does now, and more specifically, to keep it open as it is now. Because protectionism is the natural state of affairs politically, not openness. Fifth, it might be that if we cut our security ties to countries such as South Korea and Japan, that they will build up their military forces at just the right amount. Not too much that they scare other countries in the region, not too little that they embolden other countries in the region. Six, if the US pulls back, it might be that global oil prices will always quickly stabilize if a conflict emerges in major oil producing regions. Seventh, it might be that if we pull back from our alliances, our allies will all continue to be our friends and won't pick any other strategies that are less desirable to our interests. Eighth, it might be that if the US pulls back, that the sea lanes will remain as open as they are now. Ninth, if the US pulls back, it might be that if they ever merge the situation where the US needed to go back onshore again, that this could happen easily or quickly or cheaply. And tenth, on the political front, perhaps most important to think about today, it might be that if you reverse our 70-year-old grand strategy of being deeply engaged and you say, I'm pulling back on the security front, it might be that you can contain that movement to the political security side and not have it spill over also to the economic side. So in other words, it might be that we can pull out on the security side and not have that movement essentially be taken too far and shift completely towards isolationism. It might be that's how things work. Across all those dimensions, that might be the way the world works. And if so, pursuing retrenchment would be an attractive option. Bill and I just don't think the world would actually work this way, and that's why we favor staying globally engaged. The world is not perfect for America's interests. We just think things would be even worse if the US pulled back. That's it. Uh, 
Hi, everyone. Thank you again for having me uh, back at Cato. And um, uh, I really appreciate many things about Cato. It's why I'm affiliated with Cato, that it provides a forum for these kinds of discussions um, and kind of a, um, I don't know, smart intellectual Washington debate happens here. So uh, I'm pleased to be part of that. Um, uh, I also I really appreciate Stephen Bill writing the book and everything Stephen Bill um, have said about the debates about grand strategy and about the, their desire to engage with arguments for, they like the word retrenchment, I like the word restraint. Um, I'm willing to call their thing deep engagement. I think they should call my thing restraint. Um, but in any event, we're going to go. We're going to. We're, I'll. I'll uh, I, I think it's really. It's really important what they're doing, and I really appreciate um, uh, the kind of respectful dialogue that we've had for really 20 years now. And it's. And it's really. It's very helpful. It's helpful to us. I hope they say it's helpful to them. I think that's good. But so many people who basically endorse the status quo and endorse the conventional wisdom, um, do it relatively unthinkingly, kind of on, on autopilot. This is the way we always are. It's kind of a, a, just a, a, an unintellectual appeal to tradition and expertise. And, um, and I think it's, it's kind of dogma. And you know, this is the Cato Institute, so uh, we like liberty. And so uh, you know, John Stuart Mill wrote in On Liberty about the dangers of allowing our thinking to, to, to dissipate into dogma and not revisiting and seriously, systematically, intellectually engaging arguments on things that we believe we know to be true. And that's really what they're doing. They are providing this tremendous service for American society of carefully and systematically thinking about the underpinnings of what almost everyone else just sort of assumes to be true about American grand strategy. Of course, we have to do this. Of course, it's the right thing to do. And that's a hugely valuable contribution. It really improves the discourse. And the more we can get people to listen to Bill and Steve, the better off we'll be, even though they're wrong. <laughs> right, and and so you know it's important to engage with to, with them uh, uh, to remind people that they are wrong. Now, uh, they did have um, a, a tough task in that they are trying to present a really a real intellectual edifice of their entire book of this overall argument for deep engagement, and and I and and Ben get to pick a couple of points that we want to develop. There are many points of disagreements between us. And you know, we could argue for hours and hours, as we have in the past, um, about many different aspects of the book. But I'm going to pick two things to talk about. Um, uh, the first is the theory in the book, or the explanation, the intellectual argument behind it. Because I think, actually, given that they are setting out to provide kind of a scholarly intellectual basis for the strategy, it's really important that they build it on firm foundations. And I think, unfortunately, those foundations are actually weak, um, the overarching theoretical framework that they have. And then the second thing is I'm, I'm going to talk some about the problem of temptation, um, which you know, Steve uh, rightly acknowledged is, is one of the, the weakest points for their case. Um, uh, as it turns out. So on, the, th on the, 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 the theoretical foundation of the book, um, it's really it's chapters four and five. I urge you to buy it. They're selling it out there. Read the book. It's, it's a very meaningful contribution. Um, but, um, but they don't offer the 
overarching clear statement of the theory that I was hoping for or I was expecting. So there's no theory in the book of the causes of war or the causes of threat. Right? The, the, the chapter that outlines the, the intellectual underpinnings talks about the role of deterrence and the role of assurance and a couple of kind of mid-level concepts in international relations that are important concepts that make deep engagement work. Actually, these concepts also make the alternative grant strategies work. Right? So it's not distinguishing very well. Like Restraint people believe in deterrence too. Right? So they're not doing a good job of creating an underpinning architecture of what makes their sense of what causes conflict in the world different from what I think. And, and I think that um, implicitly, they've said it explicitly elsewhere, so I was surprised they didn't have more in the book, it rests on this idea of the importance of hegemonic leadership of what academics call hegemonic stability theory. Um, that uh, the world is a, is a better place. You, you have fewer uh, things falling through the cracks of collective action problems in the world. That you can um, uh, kind of overwhelm the rise of potential challenges by making a strong first mover commitment to uh, providing global security. You obviate the need for other countries to provide security. That's the core of their intellectual argument, that if we do it first, we can do it right. We can have kind of a benign hegemony in the world, tell people what to do, but we're nice guys so they won't be too upset about it. And, um, and then that, would, that would resolve the causes of war or threat. I think that's what their argument really builds on. But they actually don't say that. And it's, and it's telling, because what they're doing is in this section where they are talking about the different kind of mid-level explanations for um, violence and peace in the world, so how extended deterrence works, they're reviewing a, excuse me, a bunch of academic literature, of empirical literature, of systematic theorizing, and trying to suggest that the weight of academic evidence falls on their side, right? So they spend a fair amount of time trying to suggest that actually academics believe deterrence works. Okay, I agree with them. There's actually, there are people in the Washington environment, it became popular, particularly in the, in the 2000s in Washington, to talk about we're in a post-deterrence world, deterrence doesn't work anymore. Um, uh, I think that intellectual argument was very weak. They have also helped knock that argument out of the park. That's great. But the trouble is the hegemonic stability argument, the overall argument that says the world is a more peaceful place when there is one powerful country that um, uh, keeps security competition down is actually quite weak in academia. You can't do the kind of systematic, careful theoretical review of the academic evidence in favor of hegemonic stability theory, or in fact, on the theorizing in favor of hegemonic stability theory, which because it just sort of petered out in the late 1980s or 1990s because people couldn't figure out how to make the case for it, right? It's a weak intellectual case. And they, they really need to fix that to make their argument believable. Why do we think that it's necessary to prevent, if you want to prevent the causes of war, why do we think having one strong power, a, 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 a one strong power uh, actively engaged with the world addresses that problem of, of rising threats? Um, I actually want to pull on one of their threads of the mid-level arguments more about this also. So as they bolster the case for deterrence, um, 
as what they believe they're doing with deep engagement is deterring threats around the world, they make a case which actually is very helpful to the restraint case. They argue that deterrence is easier than compellence. Right? So, if the, so their view is if the United States is out there providing security for other countries, helping deter threats to Japan, deter threats to Germany, that's an easier job than coming back later and trying to chase away dangers um, in the world. But of course, if deterrence is relatively easy, it's even easier for the Germanys and the Japans themselves to deter. Right? So if deterrence is easy, countries can deter on their own behalf. They don't need the United States to go stand in front of them to provide their deterrence. Deterrence is easy. It's hard for Russia to compel Germany based on their own evidence. If Russia wants to tell Germany what to do, Germany is likely to give Russia the finger, right? Because they have that ability. They can, they can hold Russia off in a way because deterrence works. And the thing that's missing on this point about, well, OK, if deterrence works, maybe the US should deter for other countries in the world, or maybe the locals could deter on their own behalf. But you have to ask yourself, what does the United States have to do to convince other countries that we're serious about extending our deterrent envelope to, to protect others? So in the Cold War, there was the classic phrasing of this, right? We had to convince the Soviet Union that we would trade Los Angeles for Berlin, right? That we would be willing to fight a nuclear war to defend Berlin, even at risk of losing an American city. It was a very hard task to do, right? Because we were assumed to care more about America than we would ever care about any of our allies. But now we don't, it's not the same level of nuclear threat. It's not the Cold War. But the things that the United States does to show that our extended deterrence commitments are credible are quite aggressive pretty often. We have to show people we're a little bit crazy, that we're willing to fight, pay real cost to fight wars for other countries, not for, our, not for ourselves. And that's the real danger. It's not the I mean, there is an actual cost to the United States building forces to potentially fight on behalf of Germany or Japan. That's like a real economic cost. But independent of that cost, the real danger is that we fight extra wars. And, um, and it's not, it's, this is a version of the entrapment argument, but it's the extended entrapment argument. It's the idea that not Germany entraps us into fighting on their behalf, but that we willingly fight on Germany's behalf because we're trying to convince not only Germany, but also Japan, and also Taiwan, and also Korea, and all of our other dependencies around the world that we're crazy enough to fight on their behalf also. Basically, we have to convince people we like to fight. And, um, and that's costly. So I'm, I'm concerned about the, the, the theoretical edifice. Um, I think it's, it's uh, unproven, and in fact, it, they don't engage. It's, it's ironic, actually, in their footnotes. They, they say nice things about, about uh, their colleague, Daryl Press, my, my co-author, Daryl Press. But one of the, the very strange missing books from their footnotes is Daryl's really excellent book on, called Calculating Credibility, on the problem of um, uh, what it takes to make deterrent threats credible. And they just don't engage this. It's a real missing piece. 
Okay. Uh, in the last couple of minutes, I want to I want to say something about about temptation because I think this is a real. So instead of you know attacking the underpinnings and having this sort of very abstract critique, I think there's another point which is super important to make, which comes down it's in, in a Washington uh, framework is much more uh, concrete, which is deep engagement has a serious temptation problem, and um, Bill and Steve are very sensitive to this, and they say flat out over and over again, there is no temptation problem in true deep engagement to do democracy promotion or to do humanitarian interventions. Like, that's just not part of the strategy. If the United States feels like doing that on top, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but that's not deep engagement, so don't tar us with that. Um, I do think it's meaningful that sometimes the United States does it anyway. Like, they can't just swear that off. It, it is a cost of the current strategy. But that's not the temptation I'm talking about. The temptation I'm talking about is if you define the core security, prosperity, and liberty interests of the United States the way they do, you will be tempted to fight wars and to make costly commitments around the world on security grounds. And so they, when they say, we personally opposed the Iraq war, I'm not sure why. I can't figure it out, right? And, and, they, and if you weren't them, if you weren't Bill and Steve, who are, are super smart and, and have thought a lot about this and, want, and I believe them when they say they're not interested in the Iraq war, but if you were other people engaging in deep engagement, you would do Iraq. Right? And the answer is, the, the, the point is that the Iraq war was not justified on the grounds of democracy promotion. That was the ex post justification after we didn't find WMD. But in the lead up to the Iraq war, the conversation about it was Iraq poses a security threat to the United States. As part of deep engagement, we have to fight the Iraq war for a security reason a security threat to the United States. It was easy on the deep engagement grounds. I want to know how, if what deep engagement says is, we care about three regions of the world, one of them being the Middle East. We care about nuclear proliferation. We care about oil. And we believe that it's necessary to use US force to protect against nuclear proliferation and against instability in oil producing regions of the world. Based on the logic of deep engagement, how do you say no to the Iraq war? Right? And the Iraq war is a terrible blunder. And even they agree. They say over and over again, oh, thank God you don't have to do Iraqs if you do deep engagement. But I can't figure out, based on the logic, why not? There's always a temptation. If what you say, their quotes, we're going to manage the external environment for US security. And we are going to shape. We're going to engage in globe-shaping efforts. And we are going to revise the global institutional order. Right? They have a very activist bias built into the language that they talk about when they say the US core security goals are to protect our, our security, prosperity, and liberty. The way they define security, prosperity, and liberty is we have to do something. Right? But we might be able to have security, prosperity, and liberty while doing less. And if we phrase them not in a deep engagement way, but in a restraint way, we would be less tempted to see the need for Iraqs in order to preserve those three core goals that they, that they are talking about. <clears throat> so I think that they've, 
developed a very important argument, but I think it's hard for them to say no to some of the big costs, and it's hard for them to justify some of the, the benefits that they purport to get out of deep engagement. I think they downplay the costs and risks that are real, and they fail to adjust to the way the world has changed. Right? So they're trying, they're, they are looking for the appeal that says, um, we're going to just keep doing what we did as the United States to win the Cold War. They contort their description of the Cold War grand strategy of the United States in various ways to make it seem like deep engagement is just a continuation of fighting the Cold War, which was justified. And that's not right. They're on a different project. The Cold War was about resisting a particular enemy that was powerful and threatening. Now, they're about shaping and changing the international environment in, and, and picking fights around the world, tempting the United States to intervene over and over again. So there are, the appeal that they're drawing is a strong appeal, but it's a wrong appeal. Much better off with restraint. All right, thanks uh, everybody for coming uh, and uh, uh, for watching. Um, I, uh, it, it's actually, I should say it's, a, it's an honor for me as the sort of junior person to be here uh, in this debate and to get to argue with you guys. Uh, and, and this may sound trite, but um, I, I should say up front that, that while I don't uh, agree with the book's conclusions, I do admire its thoroughness, uh, its clarity, and the fact that it cites me, uh, albeit insufficiently. Uh, for those uh, of us accustomed to arguing with uh, Beltway advocates of uh, deep engagement, whose arguments are usually what I will generously call underdeveloped, uh, it's refreshing to deal with a well-grounded version of it that, that takes its opponents seriously rather than uh, dismissing them as isolationist quacks. Uh, I'll even admit that I learned from this book, uh, or actually uh, the book, but more its prior uh, iterations, and even adjusted my arguments as a result, although not my uh, conclusions. Recently, uh, I published with my former colleague, Justin Logan, an article called Why Washington Doesn't Debate Grand Strategy, uh, which argues that the uh, primacy, the, what, what they would call deep engagement plus, the, the uh, version you see around here, uh, that it succeeds in spite of its shoddy uh, argumentation. And we, we noted uh, there that if uh, deep engagement's DC advocates had, had truly evaluated grand strategic alternatives, uh, they would at least cite Brooks and Woolforth uh, in their arguments, but they rarely do so. So I guess that means I'm uh, intellectually invested in uh, policymakers uh, not reading or citing your work, uh, but I'll selflessly encourage, selflessly encourage them to do so anyway. Um, so, okay, with that as background, let's proceed to arguing. I want to make uh, three points, uh, uh, and then hopefully I can get to some of my other disagreements uh, in the Q&A. Uh, the three points are, one, uh, the book uh, focuses its fire on those that say deep engagement is unsustainable, rather than those like me that say the real problem is uh, that it's sustainably bad, sustainably dumb. Uh, second, uh, they ignore some of the non-security costs of deep engagement, most importantly its contribution uh, to the damage uh, to liberal government. Uh, and third, they understate the security dangers of deep engagement, specific, specifically the problems of entanglement and temptation, uh, which Eugene touched on. They're too uh, sanguine about the, the dangers of uh, 
primacy becoming its, its more aggressive cousin, uh, deep engagement plus, uh, which I call uh, the danger of handing the keys to US military hegemony to blustering illiberal dishonest leaders. Um, so uh, point one uh, about sustainability starts with terminology. I've uh, graciously uh, decided that you're free to call primacy deep engagement, as this is still a somewhat free country. Uh, and uh, as your host, uh, I'll even join you in calling it that uh, today. Uh, still, I don't think you should call it that, because it reminds me of a title of a movie I may have seen on Cinemax at some late hour in the <laughs> 90s, which I can't remember really, uh, but uh, we'll say it was uh, about a good cop that goes undercover uh, and turns bad, or, or does she? Uh, and I, was that what you were going for? I don't know. Uh, maybe it's a useful uh, metaphor. But I, I also think if that's the name, uh, Deep Engagement Plus should be called All In, uh, in, in honor of the famous biography uh, about uh, General David Petraeus. Uh, but my real issue is how you label uh, our strategy. Uh, it's not that I, I mind retrenchment, even though it makes us sound like a retreating French army. Uh, I just think uh, restraint captures something important uh, as in the title of the article you mentioned, which is Come Home America, a Strategy of, of Restraint in the Face of Temptation, which Harvey Sapolsky, Eugene, and Daryl Press wrote. Uh, as uh, you note in the book, um, restraint does have shades of Odysseus binding himself to the mask uh, in the Odyssey uh, to prevent himself from heeding the siren calls, uh, which is incidentally the image that Trevor Thal and I are hoping to put on the cover of our forthcoming edited volume on the topic of grand strategy of restraint. Um, but it seems to me that uh, overall the book is more suited uh, to another set, or it's responding really mostly to another set of uh, realist restrainer types like Steve Walton, Chris Lane, and, and Ken Waltz in certain moments. Uh, and who, those guys, if they wrote uh, an article called Come Home America, the, the subtitle would be something like a strategy of restraint in the face of restraints. Uh, because they believe that uh, the expression of unipolar power is, is self-defeating uh, because it causes others to balance or it induces ruinous costs. And thus, if we could only ignore domestic pathologies like lobbyists, we would be able to clearly see and heed the call of the uh, international system or the signal of the international system and sensibly come home. Uh, so the book, your book, goes to great lengths to refute those arguments, showing that counterbalancing is limited, not destructive to U.S. hegemony, that the budgetary costs are sustainable, and that switching over uh, to restraint wouldn't save much, uh, at least not enough to matter a lot economically. And I, I think uh, you basically succeed uh, in those claims, although uh, I would point you to recent work we've done here at Cato uh, showing that you know, we could save another trillion or trillion and uh, 0.3 over a decade from adopting restraint. But even that, I'll admit, would only slow uh, the debt's growth from, uh, it would stop the debt from growing to 28 billion and instead have it grow to about uh, 28 trillion and instead it would grow to 27 trillion, according to recent uh, CBO estimates about where we're headed. So yeah, clearly uh, our military strategy is not gonna be the solution to our fiscal troubles. But uh, what you don't refute to me is the, the version of restraint uh, that says the problem uh, with deep engagement, its associated military costs, isn't that it can't be sustained, but that it can. Uh, and here I'll quote Stein's law for the late Herb Stein, which says that if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Uh, so if 
deep engagement were unsustainable, uh, its opponents wouldn't have to criticize it so much. It would organize the resistance against itself, like ISIS did or something like that. Uh, but our, uh, our major policy problems aren't things that are unsustainable. It's things that we can do sustainably, sustainably to our detriment. Mancure Olson wrote a couple books about this, in a sense. Uh, we're rich and powerful enough in the United States to do a lot of dumb things in our foreign policy for a long time without ruin. There's a lot of ruin in a nation, especially this one, but that doesn't make it a good idea any more than being fabulously wealthy makes it a good idea to buy a fleet of 50 Lamborghinis and have an expensive drug habit. Uh, to me, what um, drives deep engagement is the power we have in the United States that lets us not care much about the balance of costs and benefits uh, the strategy has for our society. In, in international relations, IR terms, I think, uh, this gets to a problem of structural realism when it's expressed as a claim that the international system reliably, or for most states, if listened to, induces wisdom. I think properly understood, the theory should be that for certain powerful states, very powerful states like ours, the system is not the solution, it's the problem, in that it induces uh, self-harm, uh, not through self-destruction, uh, though not self-destruction, uh, hence the need for restraint. Uh, second point here, uh, non-security costs. It's predictable. Coming to Cato, you would hear this. Um, to me, uh, the effect of the liberal establishment on liberal values and on government at home is a major, if not the major, cost of, of deep engagement, although uh, these costs are impossible to quantify. Uh, I think deep engagement harms liberal values in several ways. And I think these harms, in turn, produce a new set of harms by damaging uh, the policy formation process. First, uh, the prospect or realization of wars that a restraint strategy would avoid justifies the state's restriction of various individual freedom. That occurs not just because the state grows and uh, the military establishment grows and taxes more money uh, out of people's pockets, but due to the direct curtailment of liberties, uh, in the name of security and not just wiretapping uh, or uh, violations of our uh, rights to privacy, but uh, even restrictions on travel and immigration that chiefly impact uh, Muslims these days. And I don't simply mean since uh, Trump took office. Uh, secondly, uh, the supposed requirement for presidential dispatch, which results from deep engagement, uh, boosts presidential power and saps congressional power, uh, which is the most democratic branch. And this contributes uh, to the US, uh, the tendency in US foreign policy making to be, uh, to come to resemble a kind of oligarchy of insiders only occasionally hindered by democratic oversight. And third, uh, deep engagement encourages the growth of a large national security bureaucracy shrouded in secrecy, which further retards oversight and debate. And, and those developments uh, lead to generally dumber policies because the separation of powers uh, where it still uh, applies, produces conflict, which generates information about policy that empowers oversight and interest groups to police risky and extreme policies. That moderating process generally produces policies more attuned to the national interest than those made by a largely unchecked executive. Um, and where deep engagement arrives in practice, uh, it arrives with the monopolistic alliance of expansive interests that quiet 
debate. And let me be clear here that I'm not saying that advocates of deep engagement, certainly not these advocates, support or are responsible for those erosions of uh, liberty and the uh, baleful results. I'm saying that the, the strategy they support for other reasons uh, contributes to that effect. And, and one reason for that is, is what I'm uh, going to talk about next, which is the, a couple points uh, on uh, entanglement and temptation to wrap up. The book this book argues, uh, following Michael Beckley, that the problem of entanglement, which it defines as uh, when a country is pulled into a conflict it would otherwise avoid because of an alliance, that, that this problem is rare enough to ignore, to safely ignore. Um, one problem with that is that Beckley's uh, short list of entanglements essentially says there's only been uh, five and a couple of maybes. His short list includes uh, Vietnam, although he hedges on that a bit. And uh, I think if that's right, uh, the cost of that war alone is a pretty serious problem in that uh, that one entanglement goes a long way to show the problem with uh, entanglements. Uh, another problem with this, the analysis of entanglements is that um, the book, uh, again, in relying on Beckley, largely defines entanglement away. Uh, I think alliances, because of the interests and arguments they produce, meld our sense of interest uh, with that of our allies, and Eugene touched on that. Uh, that's what George Washington was concerned about in his farewell address. Um, these cases uh, in this analysis don't count as uh, entanglement, which accounts for its really low uh, incidence. Uh, and also, there are cases, I think, short of war uh, that might be counted as, as uh, entanglement because they have substantial uh, military and diplomatic costs. So as uh, Jenny Lind pointed out in her uh, review of uh, Mike Beckley's work, a better definition of entanglement might include the Korean War, Libya, and even, uh, in a sense, the Syria War, along with Vietnam, which would show, I think, that the, the problem is more substantial than you admit. Um, to me, uh, entanglement's better defined as pressure to prepare for and fight wars. You wouldn't uh, absent uh, alliance. And you, th that comes with what Gene, uh, in the past, has called uh, off-balance sheet liabilities, so uh, not just the wars you fought or are fighting, but the, the sort of potential disasters that you're carrying uh, in your uh, portfolio or on your balance sheet. Uh, Gene has already discussed temptation, so on that topic, I'll just say that I appreciate also uh, the admission or the, the uh, statement in the book uh, that restraint would lessen the chances of fighting needless wars, but I'm not reassured uh, by the suggested uh, anecdote where, again, uh, relying the book relies on uh, Mike Beckley, and, and I'll quote the book quoting Mike Beckley on how to deal with this problem. Where the United States has overreached militarily, the main cause has not been entangling alliances, but rather self-entrapment, the tendency of US leaders to define national interests expansively, to exaggerate the magnitude of foreign threats, and to underestimate the cost of military intervention. Developing a disciplined defense policy, therefore, will require the emergence of prudent leadership, the development or resurrection of guidelines governing the use and establishment of domestic institutional constraints on the president's authority to send US forces into battle or some combination of these. Uh, so two responses to that. Uh, first, I think deep engagement over time contributes to these tendencies that uh, Beckley is here uh, lamenting by building up and empowering policies and interests that uh, make those arguments, uh, the threat inflation and the tendency to understate the danger of wars. 
even though academic uh, proponents of deep engagement are not guilty of making those arguments. Um, secondly, uh, I'm not really too confident these days in particular about the emergence of prudent leadership, uh, which is one reason, I think, to adopt the old-fashioned view that we should uh, uh, take seriously the possibility that the president could be a schmuck uh, and plan accordingly. Uh, I think that's the basic uh, insight of the, a basic insight of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, and one potential domestic institutional constraint on the president's ability to start wars is a strategy of restraint and the smaller military establishment uh, it allows. Uh, finally, one final note. Uh, on, on the uh, parade of terrible ifs that Steve Brooks uh, uh, ended with. Uh, the, I believe that the, the devils we know are on both sides of the question, uh, that uh, there are uh, no ways to proceed in any difficult decision like this that are uh, inherently uh, conservative. Uh, I think if, if somebody told you you could have uh, health care uh, for half its current price, it would be odd to say, no, I'm fine, I haven't died yet, uh, which is essentially the way I would uh, sum up that way of looking at risk. Uh, I think that the, the idea that the status quo has some a priori claim to being the careful and consider, uh, considered and conservative course has great intuitive appeal, but I think a, a more careful analysis of how risk works would, would show you that that's not the case. Thanks. Okay, thank you to our speakers. Uh, before we go to Q&A, I want to give uh, Bill and Steve a chance to respond. Um, you have free reign here, but in particular, personally, at least I'm interested to hear you guys talk about um, uh, the kind of things, that sort of second image style uh, questions like does deep engagement, uh, wither away liberal democratic norms at home, and uh, must we rely on a lack of schmucky leaders, et cetera. Um, but you know, there's also deterrence and uh, temptation and sustainability questions. Should I just, I could just stay here? Yeah. Can, can, am I audible? Yeah, my students never complain about being able to hear me. I, <laughs> I will say that. Well, hey, this is great. And what's interesting is I'm sitting in Washington, D.C., and uh, you think you're going to come down here and, and you're going to get into whether we should do this about that weapon system. or. And instead, what we have at this panel is uh, really a high-level uh, high debate that is forcing me to, to, to kind of think about you know, pretty deep questions. And so I, I don't want to shrink from some of the larger fundamental questions that you're rightly pointing to here. Um, and, um, but I will just make three large, large kind of points in response. And the first really has to do with the theory uh, question that Eugene raised. Oh, wait a minute, don't go to sleep, don't check your cell phones. Um, <laughs> the theory thing is really, really interesting. And, um, and in a way, one response is to say, if you're doing grand strategy, should you really chain yourself to just one theory? And is that the way you would want to do it if you're making a decision like that? If you're going to go out in the world and make a very expensive investment decision, you really want to chain yourself to one model? Or do you want to like look at a bunch of different models and see whether your decision is robust to considering a lot of different models about how the world works? And that's essentially the approach we take in this book, which is why Eugene does not find sort of one overarching statement of some underlying theory, but rather we rely on what he rightly calls middle-range theories. I think that's a prudent way to go in grand strategy. You know, in the academic world, it might make sense to kind of pigeon myself as, oh, I'm this kind of theorist and you're that kind. But I don't think that should be the way you go about analyzing grand strategy. 
That said, however, if I had to, if I had to nail it down, if I had to think about what is the basic proposition, it's that by and large, having power, having influence over your environment is good, unless it comes with unacceptable costs. And the bottom line is most prudential statecraft, most realist theories of how you would behave in the world would say, like, if I can have tools to influence the world around me in a way to make it better for myself, um, I'd hold on to those tools unless there's really good reasons for getting rid of those tools. And these alliances that our colleagues at the other end of the table want us to get rid of in toto, they want us to have no more permanent alliances. Those alliances are tools of power. They're tools of influence. When you actually have responsibility for policy, you're likely to start seeing the utility of maintaining those things because there are ways of influencing the world. So the basic theory is the theory that, yeah, it's kind of on balance better to be able to have influence over my environment. Not, as Eugene says, when we say shaping the environment, meaning to go forward in search of new dragons to slay, to shape and shape and shape. But we are constantly shaping it in the sense of preventing it from moving in directions that would be much worse for the United States than current directions. The second point has to do with temptation, and that also segues into the name of these strategies, restraint uh, versus retrenchment versus deep engagement. And I know nobody came in this room to hear uh, a debate like that about names. And I get it. I mean, I really don't like the fact that I, I mean, I should accept their, their, their name. The only problem is I believe in restraint. Steve and I wrote an article in Foreign Affairs in 2002 about American primacy and perspective. And we ended the, that article with the key thing about this situation in the world is it means you need to be restrained. You need to have restraint in the face of temptation. You need to follow the Bismarckian axiom of having that power. Don't get rid of the alliances because you don't trust yourself. Keep the alliances, keep the influence, keep the power, but use it with restraint. That is what we argued in 2002, and that's what we would argue today, which is why it's so hard for me to say that the, somehow the, the, the strategy that involves something as restrained as giving up a massive network of alliances that allow the United States to be the central actor in so much of the world, to say that's restrained, it's restrained, to give that all up, to cut asunder those things, to radically reshape the world's strategic environment, which after all is based upon the existence of these alliances. To call that is somehow restraint, which would be the most radical change in American grand strategy in 70 years, that's restraint. But somehow we can't use that phrase restraint to describe the exercise of power tools that we do have. So when it gets to this question very quickly here of what would a restrained deep engagement approach to something like the temptation that occurred in Iraq in the beginning of the 20th, uh, 21st century, what would it be like? Well, there were policy tools on the table that existed that would deal with or ad address those security threats. The entire realist critique of Iraq never denied the security problem that Iraq, Iraq prevented. The realists who opposed the US intervention in Iraq never said it's because we don't believe that they're developing weapons of mass destruction. It was because there was an alternative strategy available called containment that arguably could work. And so there's nothing intrinsic to the strategy itself that would deny you the option of, of moving toward a containment strategy to solve that particular security problem. Indeed, as China rises, as the world landscape gets more competitive, we think the premium is on indeed uh, looking for uh, less bold, less uh, uh, aggressive uh, uh, solutions to security problems. So 
yeah, uh, they, they just have, fine to call their grand strategy restraint, but please don't assume that that means that the idea of uh, severing the ties between the United States and all of its allies, uh, that, that, that that grand strategy is the only restrained grand strategy in the debate. There's another one, too, and that's the one that Steve and I uh, are arguing about. And finally, on the question of domestic liberty and the whole question of this thing, this country we have, the United States of America, it's the one that's doing, that's got to do this grand strategy. And boy, is it flawed. You know, you sit in this town, you really notice, like, it's only in Washington, it's only here in this country where we can say that, yeah, you know, it could be that American foreign policy is like systematically diluted for 30 years. It's like a guy buying Maseratis. It's just they're that stupid. And where if I go out in a lot of other parts of the world and say, how likely is it that all these public servants who've been working so hard on American foreign policy are really diluted? Most parts of the world would say, yeah, it's probably not likely. But here in Washington, you probably know a lot of these people say, yeah, those guys are crazy. Um, but at the end of the day, it seems to me that um, this United States that we're dealing with, that you have to ask yourself, it does have a problem of temptation. It did have a problem of uh, trying, it, it does face a challenge in trying to secure its domestic liberties. The question is, should it externalize these domestic problems through a radical change in grand strategy in order to fix perceived problems domestically, or should it try to fix the problems domestically? Like, what weird set of logic says, gosh, you know, I'm kind of worried about what presidents might do, so what I'll do is entirely radically alter my entire interaction with the rest of the international system. And by the way, that's a decision which is not about four years in Trump. It's a decision that once you do it, it's going to be very, very hard to, re to, 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 to reverse. So whereas we advocate a good response to temptation is to work on our domestic institutions to try to make sure there's proper invigilation of presidential decision-making, the other side of the room wants to solve those Pro proclivities towards imprudent behavior that emanate from the U.S. domestic system by radically transforming the United States' relations with the entire world. I frankly don't find that a restrained solution to the problem. So I don't have a, as sweeping kind of reactions as, as Bill just had. I'll just, you know, dive into a couple more specific points in hopes that um, they can spur conversation about those issues. I would just very briefly like to note that you know, on the terminology issue, um, if one side of a debate is restrained or restrained, then by implication, the other side, you know, can't be constrained. And that's the problem we're running into, is that we would only favor deep engagement if it can be um, restrained to the core things that we talked about. Those are quite a lot of things to do, but it does mean you don't do the plus part of deep engagement plus. Um, very quickly, on the theory side, uh, with respect to... Um, hegemonic stability theory, um, the original version of that theory made an extraordinarily strong claim, which was cooperation in the world, especially the global economy, is impossible, like 0%, if you don't have a leader. That was an untenable claim. That claim was critiqued, and then um, people moved away from talking a lot about hegemonic stability theory. But what survived... And what we draw upon the book is a more reasonable version of hegemonic stability theory, which says cooperation is more likely if you have a leader. And that feeds right into what I want to say about deterrence, which is that Eugene said, you know, our allies can do deterrence. You know, we don't need us to do it. But for our allies to do deterrence, they would have to cooperate they would have to do it together, but they might not. 
you know, maybe our allies, say for example, Japan and South Korea will cooperate in containing China. Do you think it's as likely that they'll work together than if we're there leading them? And if they don't cooperate, or, or sorry, even if they do cooperate, you're not out of the woods, right? Which is that if Japan and China build up to contain, or sorry, Japan and Korea build up, what will China do in response? How will it feel? It will feel more threatened. You know, so, you know, even if our local allies jump into the fray and provide this deterrence, which I'm not sure that they would, I'm still concerned that they would build up in such a way that actually produce a security dilemma. And last time, realist theory, which these guys are drawing upon, indicated that realist dilemma, or sorry, security dilemmas are not very good things. Um, on Iraq, um, I'll say something I've never said before, and you know, just for the sake of argument, kind of granting as much as I possibly can, and say, you know, maybe, maybe Iraq, in sense of dealing with um, the challenges that were on the table, um, especially proliferation, maybe um, this was something that the U.S. was going to do, and that maybe um, I wasn't sitting in power at the time, maybe if I had been, maybe I would have seen all the intelligence and maybe I would have decided the same thing. Maybe. But what really made Iraq a true tragedy was not the removal of Saddam Hussein, but it was the decision to stay there for 10 years and try to make it into what it is not, but what we hoped it would be. You could have gone to Iraq, removed Saddam Hussein, found out they didn't have weapons of proliferation, and then installed someone else that you knew that was reliable and said to them, you see what happened to the last guy? Um, we hope you'll do a good job, but, you know, good luck. But remember, you know, we're still going to be around and we encourage you to do the right thing. Um, that would have been the same as what we had, but, you know, with maybe 5% of the cost that we bore. The, bore. the cost that we bore in terms of remaking that society utterly are completely optional. So um, finally, on the Cold War, um, Eugene was saying, you know, can't really say that this is a continuation of the Cold War uh, grand strategy. It's something about something different. It's very important to understand that during the Cold War, you know, you remember the, the famous phrase about what's the purpose of NATO? It's to um, keep the Russians out, keep the Germans down, and so forth. Well, remember that, you know, keep the Germans down part, that was part of the deal. During the Cold War, NATO and our alliances had two purposes. One was to keep the Soviets out, but also to make sure that our allies were safe from each other. What happened after the Cold War ended is that the first reason, keeping the Soviets out, that disappeared. But the second reason, which had always been there, keeping our allies safe from each other, endures, and all that's happened is that element of the grand strategy has continued. Great. We have some time for questions. A uh, couple ground rules. Please wait to be called on. Uh, wait for the micro microphone so that everyone, not only in the room, can hear you, but also those watching online. Um, announce your name and affiliation, and please keep it to a question. Uh, don't make a speech. Um, this gentleman down here in front. Microphone's coming behind you, sorry. Right there. Lou Gagliano. 
question about the regional flashpoints that exist, and I would argue that the landscape has changed because of North Korea, what Russia has done, the Syrian situation, the uh, non-nation uh, non states of, of terrorism. So in a re restraint strategy, who is going to deal with those situations given the fact that regional players don't be seen stepping up to take care of those issues from blowing up? Um, yeah, it's on. It's on. Okay. So, um, so who would deal with North Korea, Syria, other potential regional flashpoints uh, under restraint um, if, because uh, it looks like people aren't stepping up uh, currently other than the United States. Well, so, I mean, the first point to make is the, the cheap riding kind of argument uh, that we've gone back and forth about over time, not as much today, would suggest that you can't really read very much into the current behavior of other countries in the world and their lack of stepping up um, uh, to deal with regional threats, um, because part of the reason they don't is that we do, right? So the fact that we're always out in front saying, no, 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 you guys don't take care of this, we got it, leads other countries to act less responsibly or to, take, to, to, to make less effort uh, of their own in response to, um, you know, uh, potential challenges in their own neighborhood, right? So the fact that, um, uh, so in uh, the Syria situation, uh, I think it's very difficult to, to interpret or understand the intentions or the behavior of other countries of what's going on in their heart of hearts and their governments. I don't think we understand our own government that well, so I think we would understand other governments is a big is a big challenge. But if you wanted to understand why it is that U.S. allies like you know, Syria or Qatar have been, or not Syria, uh, Saudi Arabia or Qatar have been irresponsible in uh, the extremists that they choose to back in the Syrian civil war and the fact that they're not dealing with or coming to an accommodation in the situation and trying to cause peace in the, in the Syrian civil war, might, they, they have some license to engage in bad behavior because of the current international environment where the U.S. offers them a backstop. Now, would they solve the problem? Would you end up with some kind of, uh, if the United States wasn't there, would Saudi Arabia and Iran change their relationship to each other in a more productive way, stop competing indirectly in a Cold War by backing different sides in Syria that leads to lots of killing in Syria? I don't know the answer to that. I know there's some pretty good theories that's, that suggest that the current security environment can enable bad behavior. And I know that there are also some pretty good theories to suggest that it's very difficult under any circumstances to make the kind of terrible killing that's going on in Syria go away, whether it's through more aggressive US intervention or less aggressive US intervention, whether it's through locals solving the problem or people playing an away game like the United States going to Syria to solve it. This is just a hard problem to solve, right? And so saying that I'm gonna pick the strategy that solves Syria, I think is, there's probably no strategy that solves Syria, right? You gotta ask what are the costs and benefits of um, you know, a particular strategy for this circumstance. And, and the last thing I'll say, I mean, you could go on about Syria, we could have a whole conversation about it, or about North Korea, which I've, you know, I've switched from one to the other. Um, but uh, um, uh, their version of deep engagement doesn't want to solve Syria either, right? So this is something where we agree that there is 
you know, you would have to do a dramatically expensive deep engagement plus to, to envision some, you know, anyone stepping up on Syria, right? So it's, it's um, uh, and on, on many of these, you know, bad things happen in the world, right? That's something we all agree. <laughs> well, just to follow on to that quickly, uh, the, to be clear, I think Eugene said this, but I want to underline it. The terrible intractable problems of international security, several of which you just mentioned, are not problems that uh, the current grand strategy of the United States is dealing with better uh, than restraint would. In fact, there are things that occurred amidst the current grand strategy of the United States. Even if you don't, and I, I wouldn't uh, blame U.S. grand strategy for what happened in Syria, uh, it's notable that, that you know these aren't problems that are being stopped now. So we're sort of in the same boat as the I think as the deep engagement people uh, when it comes to those problems. Uh, there was a this gentleman in the hat on the aisle. Thank you. My name is Yaya Fundusi with the United States of Africa 2017 Project Task Force. I was born 74 years ago in Africa. That's four years before you have this nonsense about U.S. grant, what you call, leadership. When you're dealing with Wall Street, they do an assessment of corporations. They value them, right? Valuation. Now, how are you going to value this grand theory for the last 70 years when you don't take into account how people who don't look like you, most of the majority here, how that theory impacts their lives, as you see now in Syria, Libya, and Iraq. You need to think about that and develop some metrics and indicates in this index to make you know what you're talking about. I, I got all my university education in this country. You don't want to have been me to be your student. You will be embarrassed. <laughs> It's a decent question. Are Americans insulated from some of the consequences and costs of deep engagement, unlike other people? Well, again, for the purposes of this book, we adopted a uh, metric of assessing this in terms of na relatively narrowly conceived U.S. national interests. And the book does not ask the question of, it doesn't seek to address the question of whether the world as a whole is better off than the United States uh, with or without deep engagement. We have to think there are some regions and some, there are some areas that would be worse off because, as uh, Steve says, uh, internet, uh, global cooperation, at least as best as we understand it, to solve issues that cross borders is probably less likely to occur if there's no state that can, can perform a leadership role via its centrality to the system. Um, and so on, on, on balance, you could probably argue that, yeah, you could construct, you could, you could, you could, um, you could, um, uh, you could, uh, um, construct a scenario under which the, the world is worse off uh, as a whole, not just U.S. citizens are worse off if the United States uh, adopts a, a restraint uh, or come home grand strategy. Now, the bigger question, though, is kind of um, uh, how do people perceive it? And in the status quo, there's no question that it's perceived often as intrusive, as hypocritical, as, I mean, I study, I don't study uh, African countries, I study Russia. I go to Russia a lot, and I know how American foreign policy is perceived there. And that's definitely a, uh, uh, an effect of, of pursuing a strategy that cuts a large role in the world scene. I'll just only say one thing, that often you can lose friends and make enemies through not doing things just as much as you can lose friends and make enemies by doing things. So it's really not clear which, on balance, uh, makes the United States warmer or colder in the hearts of people outside of the country. The only thing I'll add is that um, 
in terms of the welfare of the rest of the world, I mean, I think it'd be it'd be my own personal view if I could, you know, design everything that I would continue our deep engagement grand strategy, but do it by spending um, somewhat less on defense and using that money towards um, doing things in terms of um, technological transfers. Um, allowing funding for countries that are actually interested in doing things to promote the environment, but they can't because it's too costly in terms of health assistance. So there's a lot of stuff that we could do on that front, but I'm also realistic enough to know that, you know, we could still cut our defense budget and shift to a strategy of restraint. Um, and we might not devote any of that money saved towards these other kinds of things. But if I myself could implement the strategy, there are plenty of things I could cut in the defense budget um, I'm not really very sure about what the role of aircraft carriers is this today. Um, I do think we should invest more in things like submarines. Well, submarines cost less than FK, uh, aircraft carriers. So the things you could do to cut defense and allocate the money towards more welfare-enhancing things for the rest of the world, but I unfortunately can't you know, flip a switch and make that happen. I think one, one problem uh, with uh, deep engagement from my perspective is that uh, causes the United States to be blamed uh, both for the things it deserves blame for around the world that have to do with alliances we had with uh, uh, dictators and other noxious regimes and uh, other things that we don't deserve blame for. So uh, because we're so active in the world, we sort of become perceived as the author of everybody's problems. And I think that's, that's a, a cost, at least, that we didn't uh, talk about. And, and while I'm on the subject, briefly, of... Uh, costs that have to do with others, uh, not Americans. I think it's, it's worth noting, I think, that um, in Europe, uh, arguably, the NATO alliance has been an obstacle to European integration. Uh, this is not a view that they take, of course, but uh, I think, uh, arguably, there would be a stronger European Union uh, in the absence of a NATO alliance that prevents the, uh, has been a, real part of U.S. foreign policy prevent there from being a common foreign and security policy uh, in Europe. And I know a lot of Europeans don't look at it that way, but I think more should, that, that there is some competition uh, between NATO and the European project. Okay, we're running out of time, but I want to fit in two more questions, and we'll take them at the same time. There's one in the third uh, row on the aisle right here in the suit, and then the second one can be the first gentleman right here and down. Yeah. Hello, thank you very much for uh, a very interesting uh, discussion. My name is Ken Johnson, uh, Dev Kanye, which is an international development and risk management firm. Uh, my question relates to uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons. And my concern and the question that I have is that if our allies are supposed to sort of fend for themselves, that tells me that they would be encouraged to have to have their own nuclear deterrence. Um, Japan would have to have its own nuclear deterrence. Uh, South Korea would have to have her own nuclear deterrence. And what about Taiwan? And, you know, the detonation of, of nuclear weapon, I think, is a, a, a serious concern. So could you potentially address that? And uh, also, would possibly what I call uh, benevolent hegemony uh, might be something to, uh, to look forward to? Thank you. Okay, and, and this gentleman here in the corner, in the front, yeah. <coughs> Kendall on Ciencia Press. Yeah, I think it was going Why on. did we attack Iraq? 
Uh, I think the first one's more directed to the restraint camp. So nuclear proliferation, how do you solve that problem? Uh, anyone can take the second, I suppose. Uh, so, um, I mean, nuclear proliferation is, is uh, uh, a huge outstanding question in, you know, how to understand it, how, how to understand the, the costs and risks and of, of nuclear proliferation is, is um, you know, one of these huge questions of international relations. Like, we'd like, to, we'd like to, to know more about this. Unfortunately, one of the ways that we typically learn more about things is, is um, observing empirical evidence about them, and most of us are grateful that we actually lack a lot of empirical evidence about this because, you know, we can make theoretical arguments about benefits and costs, um, but they sound they seem scary to us. So there's not that much there's not much, that much data to work with to understand the risks um, of of uh, proliferation. A couple of things to say about it, given the lack of data, right? So one one thing is that um, uh, the United States has much more influence on the proliferation decisions of the kinds of countries that we worry less about than on the kinds of countries we wor worry more about, right? So the United States gets a lot of, of um, uh, potential influence through our alliance network on whether wealthy, technologically sophisticated countries with high quality governance, you know, good at keeping track of things, unlikely to work with terrorists, a whole bunch of things that basically make them uh, um, low-risk countries, we prevent those countries from getting the bomb. The only way that we can, through a peaceful mechanism, right? The, the main way, way is that we prevent um, countries that are highly risky from getting the bomb or fail to prevent, in the case of, say, Pakistan, countries which would be worrisome. Like, I think all of us maybe should be worried, like, if, you know, what country in the world are we most nervous about having the bomb? Pakistan's pretty high on the list, I would think, right? It's a country that's, that um, uh, does have a government with a bad history of working with extremists. Um, maybe not the most technically competent place. Maybe the place where there's a lot of chaos going on in the neighborhood, right? And we can't control those countries. Deep engagement doesn't solve the problem of the most dangerous proliferation risks. It solves the problem of the least dangerous proliferation risks. Now, what do you do with, with, with specifics? You mentioned you know, Japan or Korea or Taiwan. Um, uh, it is certainly possible. Like, I, I think the United States shouldn't be in the business of determining the best national security strategy for other countries. Other countries know more about their own security situation, have democratic practices, have you know, the right to make choices, should be responsible for their own choices, right? So, so I think Japan should continue to have an evolving um, uh, debate about the best way to defend themselves um, uh, given the strategic environment. And if they choose to move in the direction of nuclear proliferation um, uh, of, of building a bomb, um, I would hope that they would do it. In fact, I'd be willing to help them do it responsibly, right, to reduce transition dangers. I think that would be, you know, to help them have a secure second strike, to help reduce the risks of their kind of proliferation, right? But, but, um, but I'm not eager for that outcome. I just think it's a realistic possible outcome that, you know, is not inherently the most scary kinds of dangers, right? People, when you say it's another, you know, when you say 
nuclear proliferation, or you say WMD, these are scare stories, right? It's like the whole topic is very, makes us very nervous. And I think we have to um, draw lines about what we can realistically control, what the different levels of danger might be for different possible outcomes, and you have to weigh this in the balance. And, you know, I think there are, I think Japan is actually a quite um, a secure uh, uh, country and not a country that scares me a huge amount, right? That one doesn't keep me up at night the way Pakistan might keep me up at night. So um, on the nuclear issue, I think it's really, really important. I'm glad you raised the question because um, it's an area in which, I mean, it's fundamentally important and where you can most clearly see, in my view, how um, moving in a restraint kind of direction is reliant upon us, a series of assumptions and a view of essentially uh, rationality, which might be how things work, but might not be. So first point to note is that on this issue, I, uh, most fundamentally, there's no disagreement and that everyone on the side of this grand strategy debate agrees there's going to be a lot more nuclear proliferation. So you're right. Um, so then the issue is how will it happen and how dangerous is that? And that's where there's a divergence. Um, so one thing that everyone agrees upon is if states don't have survivable nuclear forces, you know, if they have a small arsenal that can perhaps be taken out by someone else, that's, that's not good. That's very dangerous. And so then the question is, will all the states that get nuclear weapons have survivable forces? You know, if not, then adding new nuclear powers is bad. That's very dangerous. So I guess we'll help Japan do this, but are we going to help, you know, Taiwan do this? Are we going to help all other countries, will we help Saudi Arabia do this? Will we help Egypt do this? Who, who will we help, who will we not? And who can do this and who can't? So that's one issue. Another issue is to do this, if, even if we're helping our allies do this, you're gonna have to essentially extend our nuclear umbrella over them while they're doing this, right? So you're gonna have to say like, cause they can't create a nuclear weapon in, in a week or a day, it's gonna take years. So you're gonna have to say to our allies, we're dropping you, um, but not yet. But then how do you know what the right amount of time to extend the umbrella is? You can't say you're dropping you in two years. That may not be enough time for them to actually be able to follow through and produce the weapons. You can't say it's in 10 years because then they won't believe you and they might not start down that path. So is it 4.2 years? Is it 5.25 years? I've never heard an answer to that question from those on the other side of this debate. Finally, let's say it works out well. Let's say that... Um, we extend the umbrella for the exact right amount of time and that all these other countries, our allies and adversaries, all build up survivable forces. You know, do you get to say, yay, you know, no problem? I don't think so because there's still the problem of accidents. There's still the problem of crises spiraling out of control. And no, those aren't huge percentage chances, but I'd rather have that level of chance happening for only 10 states than 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. As the number gets bigger, the likelihood of eventually there being a nuclear exchange goes up. And if a nuclear war happens, A, global economy is finished, and B, even a small nuclear war will be an environmental disaster. So um, I think almost for me, that just on the nuclear weapons front, that's enough by itself almost for me to say that deep engagement is the better course. Can I just say something quickly and then Bill can have the last word if he wants it. Uh, one, I, I think there is substantial disagreement about how much uh, proliferation is likely absent uh, US military hegemony. Uh, what 
part of what animates the restraint strategy, the logic underlying it is strong confidence about deterrence and about also the decline of uh, aggressive instincts in, in global politics for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, and for those reasons, I think uh, we are more confident or uh, less confident that there'll be lots of proliferation. I, I wouldn't, I, I agree with Eugene that it's unclear, but uh, I think because Japan, for example, has such defensible coastline, it, it, it's not clear to me at all that it would be uh, in a security dilemma with China of such uh, intensity that it would have to uh, get nukes. Um, secondly, um, on Iraq, I will just answer the question by saying because we could, and the fact that we did it because we, nobody has to, you know, nobody cares about what Bolivian designs on Iraq are, right? We did it because we could. Not, that's not the only reason, but it's the first reason. Uh, it allowed it. So uh, that fact, I think, has serious implications for how one should think about U.S. power in the world and the dangers inherent in being able to do things like that because we could. Uh, third, uh, finally, uh, just to get back to this idea that it's, it's a weird logic that says uh, that U.S. foreign policy choices and, and military deployments would uh, impact and, and thus be a way to fix uh, our domestic institutions and sort of the quality of liberty we have. I don't think it's weird. Uh, I think it's old-fashioned. I think, you know, it's, it's essentially the logic that underlies the U.S. Constitution. Uh, you know, when Bernard Brody, uh, the end of his life, wrote a book where he was talking about this idea that uh, we ought to give the president all the options he can have when it comes to deciding whether to have war and, and uh, how to use nukes. Uh, Brody said, you know, you might think that's a good idea, but uh, it, it contradicts the basic logic of our Constitution. So I, I think that that's how I would think about it. It's, it's quite natural, really, to think about uh, the impact of our foreign policy choices on our domestic institutions. Well, all I can say is that this country's constitution was written and its first century existed in a very, very benign security environment. Yes. I think that the greatest threat to its institutions would be increased uh, uh, violence wrought upon this territory. And I think that if the United States uh, severs all of its alliances, the world will become less secure and the incubation spaces for people who would do such acts will be much greater. The world will be much uh, uh, more hostile. And the probability of such uh, a threat emerging on the U.S. territory will be much greater than it is now. And therefore, if you're interested in preserving those institutions in a world that is not like that 19th century world in which this Constitution was formed, you actually do have to care about the security of the rest of the world. And that, 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 that the US, U.S. domestic liberties and U.S. domestic freedom and U.S. domestic political institutions are now more dependent on the overall state of the world. And so an enlightened self-interest involves sustaining that grand strategy, which actually makes the world now much more peaceful than it would otherwise be. We're officially uh, way over time. Uh, the book is being sold right outside here. I encourage you all to purchase it. We're going to have lunch on the second floor in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. It's right out, uh, up, up the spiral staircase up here. The restrooms are also on the way. Uh, you look for the yellow wall, and you'll see the restrooms there. Thank you, everybody, and thank to our speakers. Thank you.